to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. Now, I have to be honest with you and tell you that I have seen more than one season of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. Megan enjoys the show, so it is my solemn duty to offer insightful commentary that is thoughtful um, and constant throughout every episode. Never sarcastic or exasperated or dumbfounded, absolutely on point at every moment. For instance, I am glad that this season's villain, Crystal, has been sent home. See, Lee watches, he knows. And I was very impressed with Kendall's maturity in interacting with Crystal on their two-on-one date with Scottsdale resident Ari. Exciting stuff, I know. Now, unfortunately, unlike The Bachelor and Bachelorette, I cannot see a show about friendship getting much traction in our culture. Friendships are often viewed as merely a consolation prize compared to romance. And I think that this is tragic. The truth is, most people are lonely, longing to be known and loved. Casey is looking for connection, for a buddy, a friend, someone to weather the ups and downs of life with. And generally, more than one friend is better. Now, for some reason, the message that we receive from our culture is that a romantic partner or spouse will fill the relational void that we all have. And while it can help, nothing can replace good friends. And romance can actually interfere with friendships to the point that people abandon their friends when they meet that special someone. And when there are problems or challenges or they realize that no one is perfect, not even their significant other, it sure helps to have a good friend to talk to. Now, friendship is absolutely vital to life. And while I hope all of you find a spouse, if that's what you want, I hope that you will have good friends even more. When I see my, my son Roland on the playground or interacting with other kids in public or at church, I want him to be treated well to make friends, to have other kids that he loves being around, to be told in subtle and obvious ways that he matters, that he is valued, that he is loved a little bit like how Megan and I love him, a little bit like how God loves him. And I hope that Megan and I give him a foundation of love and connection so that he can make his way in life, ready to make other friends, knowing that he's loved by us and more importantly, that he's loved by God. And I hope your family gave you that security as well. We're given families to anchor us to connection. But as we launch out into life, our families aren't always with us. And it becomes our friends that help us in life and continue to feel this connection. Now, the Journal of Happiness Studies, which is exactly what it sounds like, studies happiness, there's a journal, um, it makes it clear that the one area that differentiates consistently happier people from less happy people is the presence of rich, deep, joy-producing, life-changing, meaningful relationships. Now, certainly life is not only about being happy, but relationships are foundational to a thriving life, which is exactly what the Bible tells us. We're made in the image of a relational three-in-one God who created everything out of the context of incredible, ever-expanding love. We were made to share in the love that the Father, Son, and Spirit have shared for all eternity. And one of the unique ways that we experience that love is through people. In Genesis, we're told that even with an unbroken relationship with God, it wasn't good for people to be alone. 
that we need others. We need friends to share love with, to teach us to love each other, to feel the love of God through. Jesus says that we will be known by our love for one another. And Paul writes, the followers of Jesus are to be rooted and established in love. Pastor and author John Ortberg tells us, when a tree puts down roots into the ground, those roots are able to take in nutrients and water, and the tree grows in his life and strength, but only if it's rooted. In the same way, we are rooted and our souls are nourished in the love of God and other people. We experience this both physically and emotionally when we connect with somebody. Whenever we connect with people who genuinely care about us, it nourishes our souls. With every conversation and hug, every prayer together and interaction, we grow in connectedness. And the opposite is true as well. When we aren't connected with God and with others, we wither. Being alone, truly alone, is one of the worst punishments known to humans, and it's one of our greatest fears. The truth is we can't even study the effects of isolation because no one will remain in the study long enough to actually produce testable results. The studies drive people crazy and leads to terrible emotional issues. Ortberg tells us, that, tells us that disconnected people are more prone to depression, anxiety, loneliness, low self-esteem, substance abuse, sexual addiction, and difficulties with eating and sleeping. Spiritually, we're more likely to give in to discouragement and temptation, to focus entirely on ourselves and our own problems instead of loving and serving others, to use our money in selfish ways, and to ignore God and others. We miss out on the love of others, and others miss out on the love that we were meant to give to them. Physically, people without friends are between two and five times more likely to die from any cause than those who have close ties to family, friends, and other relationships. People who have bad health, like cigarette smoking, overeating, elevated blood pressure, and physical inactivity, but who still remain connected, live longer than people who have great health habits but are disconnected. There is no healthier New Year's resolution than to make some friends and become more deeply connected relationally. Now, this doesn't mean that we all need to be outgoing. Being an extrovert is not a prerequisite for great friendships. But what it does mean is that we have to learn how to be a good friend and to cultivate friendships and then to learn who are good friends to us. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. We're going to explore what true friendship looks like, what the foundation of that friendship is through the words of Jesus and two great friends from the Bible. And I hope that we can learn not only about real friendship, but how we can be a better friend ourselves and flourish in our connection together. So one of my favorite people in the Bible was David. David was a humble shepherd, a prolific musician, a warrior who defeated a giant with a slingshot and the greatest king Israel ever knew. David was called a man after God's own heart in spite of his public issues with infidelity, poor parenting, and violence as a whole. David gives me great hope that someone with clear brokenness can still be seen as a man after God's own heart, as he consistently owned his issues and came to God for healing and forgiveness. David was also a great friend. He was one part of a great dynamic duo that rivaled Timon and Pumbaa, Lilo and Stitch, Batman and Robin, and even Chris Bryan and Anthony Rizzo, affectionately known as Brizzo to all Cubs fans. Sorry, I had to work the Cubs in somehow. This biblical duo topped them all. David and Jonathan, a musical shepherd and the son of David's predecessor, King Saul, 
They were known as Jonid or Davithan, I don't know. Or maybe they weren't, but they were as inseparable as brothers, and we can learn a lot about friendship from them. So let's start at the beginning. How did a shepherd like David meet a prince like Jonathan in the first place? It doesn't seem like on the surface this friendship should have ever happened. Jonathan's father provides the context. King Saul was a tormented man, and one of the only things that could help him was music. Music soothed his distressed spirit, and conveniently, David was a musician known to one of Saul's advisors. Specifically, the advisor said this in 1 Samuel 16, 18. One of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented harp player. Not only that, he is a brave warrior, a man of war, and has good judgment. He is also a fine-looking young man, and the Lord is with him. Now that is a ringing biblical endorsement, if I've ever heard one. <laughs> David's musical gifts, his value as a warrior, and a man, and even his good looks have been communicated as far as the royal court in Jerusalem. God was even with them. Good thing David wasn't a contestant on the Bachelor Guy Love Edition or none of the other guys would have had a chance. Not even Roland, which is saying a lot. So, Saul had David summoned to court to play music for him and play David did. So well, in fact, that Saul asked David to be released from his responsibilities as a shepherd, be at his court full time. So a country lad found his way to the big city and was thrust into a court full of intrigue, politics, and occasional chaos due the, to the king's uncertain moods. This is where David met his future best friend, Jonathan. And the two hit it off quickly and became as close as two peas in the pod. This is what we read. After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them for Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David together with his tunic sword, bow, and belt. Now imagine for a moment what it must have been like for David and Jonathan. Imagine the barriers that existed to their friendship. David was a nobody before he was summoned to court. He didn't know how to talk or dress or act around royalty. Sometimes the people in the court wondered if he knew his left from his right. He was young and wide-eyed and very out of place. How could he hope to fit in to this palace and make friends. Jonathan, on the other hand, was the crown prince, the heir to the throne. He'd grown up in privilege, been trained for battle and for rule from the youngest age. He lived and breathed the culture of the court and everyone knew that one day, Jonathan would be king. How could Jonathan hope to make a real friend, one who liked him for himself instead of his position or future? And yet somehow, David and Jonathan become friends, not just acquaintances or coworkers or Facebook friends, but real friends. The Bible uses the term bond, love, and pact to describe the friendship here at the very beginning of their relationship. In spite of the barriers between them, David and Jonathan develop a genuine friendship. And it's the same for us. Relationships always develop in spite of the barriers to them. Every friendship we have had to overcome barriers of fear and inadequacy, conversation stumbles and miscommunication, first impressions in culture and personality. The list of barriers is almost endless. How will the person you meet in class this week or at work or at the store or in the neighborhood become your friend? Both of you overcome your fear and insecurity and you begin a conversation. 
And as you talk, you're constantly thinking of what to say next, trying to decide, is a longer conversation uh, warranted here? Does that make sense? Or would that be inappropriate? You think maybe they dress a little oddly or have a slight accent, and they probably think the same thing about you. But the conversation continues, and after that first discussion, you hit the first real barrier, time and commitment. The number one rule to creating great friendships is to make it your top priority and to give it the time that friendship requires. We devote huge amounts of time to our school or our jobs or to making money or getting tasks done, even trolling through Facebook. And then we wonder why we have very few or very shallow relationships. We make time for a myriad of important things, but don't always prioritize friendship. And if we don't make the commitment, if we don't give it time, these relationships will never develop. In Acts 2, we're told about the early followers of Jesus and the incredible community that they had. It says this, all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Every day they met together. Often the primary barrier to great friendships is our lack of time. It's our pace of life. We tell each other, we'll have to get together soon, or let's reconnect when life settles down a little bit. The trouble is this is never going to happen. Real community can only happen with time, unhurried large amounts of time. You can't make friends in a hurry. You can't listen or love or celebrate or mourn in a hurry. When we live hurried lives, we choose to live them alone. And that's tragic. David and Jonathan chose friendship, and we can too. Their commitment to each other is very high, even at the initial meeting. Jonathan clearly chooses and commits to David, and that is a commitment that weathers many challenging circumstances. Now, I don't propose that you give everyone you meet the commitment that Jonathan and David had for each other, but the commitment you must make is to reaching out, to exploring if this person might be trustworthy, compatible, and open to a new friendship. You must be committed to the time it takes to developing that friendship. Now, I remember when I was a freshman at the self-styled Harvard of the Midwest, that is Truman State University. Truman was in a small town in Northeast Missouri that was six hours from my home in the Chicago suburbs. And when I got there, I knew no one. I showed up with all my stuff, my family helped me move in, and then they left me in a dorm with a bunch of strangers and with a roommate who was questionable at best and left his cans of tobacco spit scattered around our room. Real story. I was very much alone, and I had a decision to make. I could begin to engage with people. I could little by little meet others and explore if the roots of friendship could really develop with someone in my hall or in class or at church maybe. I could overcome the fear and discomfort, or I could stay lonely. And I did not want to be alone. So I engaged, and it was really hard. Developing new friendships is not easy. You don't have this instant intimacy and connectedness with people you've just met. That comes with time, with relational history, and a consistent commitment to each other. I think my freshman year was the loneliest year of my life. I had left a home where I had a huge group of friends and deep relationships that had been formed over years. 
and even the new people I met who seemed nice paled in comparison to my friends back home. But I committed myself and I gave it time. And after a while, I just started to develop real friendships. It took pursuing the little things like lunch together or hanging out on a Saturday night or even a school night, because you're in college. Who cares whether it's school night? Come on, that's mom talk. We'd go see a movie together. We'd serve in church or the community together. Many small instances of building on each other over time. And many of those people that I met during that time are still my friends today. The friends I made in college are some of the best friends I have in the world because of the time and commitment we had to the relationship and the unique experience that college is. And some of those friends I made are in this room almost 20 years later. And the same thing can happen to you. Whether you are a freshman or a parent, a high schooler or a grandmother, friendship is available if you make the time and commitment to it. Jonathan, if you notice at their meeting, made a commitment to pursuing David immediately. At their meeting, Jonathan did this really unique thing. In verse four, it says that Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. And it's interesting in this scene that it's Jonathan who moved towards David, not the other way around. And he gave David some items as a visible representation of his commitment to him. This was a common way of sealing a pact, um, but Jonathan went above and beyond that. In fact, like in Ruth, we see Boaz and his relative sealing a transaction by taking off a sandal and giving it to the other man. But here, Jonathan does way more than a sandal. What's he doing here? Well, we have a really unique situation where there's an extreme inequality in these men's stations. We have a prince, the crown prince of the kingdom, and a shepherd. And in order for true friendship to occur in this sort of situation, a leveling of the field has to occur. Jonathan decided that he was going to be friends with David in a way that this shepherd boy had no way of doing. David may have been wanted to be friends. He may have wanted to be friends with Jonathan, but the prince didn't have to reciprocate. Who was this guy? He was just a shepherd. But Jonathan chose to be David's friend and showed his commitment by giving him gifts and elevating him. Because real friendship is not about power or prestige or position, but about humility and equality and mutuality. Jonathan removes his trapping of privilege and gives them to David, in effect humbling himself while elevating David. And it is a beautiful picture of friendship. So the question for us, when was the last time that you humbled yourself and elevated a friend? When were you last generous towards someone? And when did someone do that for you? Because these are marks of real friendship. What can we do to be committed to friendships this week? How can you make the time and commitment? Now, one of the best ways that I know is to share meals together. Everyone needs to eat, and man, it's better to do that together. In fact, Acts tells us that the early church broke bread together daily. Grab a meal with someone this week that you'd like to get to know or you want to reconnect with. Be intentional about it and initiate not just once, but again and again. And the truth is a real friend will initiate with you as well. But if we wait for others to initiate, we may be waiting a long time. And it's possible that someone's waiting for you the same way you might be waiting for them. Choose that you will risk by reaching out and know that this is how friendships develop over time, through commitment. 
Jonathan chose to commit to David and he gave David many gifts to show his affection. And when you have a good friend, you let them know that you appreciate them. You encourage them. When you see something that reminds you of them, you send them a note or maybe you even buy them a gift. These small acts will build over time in the right context. Time and commitment is the first foundation of true friendship. Now there's more to David's and Jonathan's story and the stakes get raised in their story very quickly. David rises in the court and in the eyes of the nation from obscurity to fame after his defeat of the giant Goliath. He becomes a national hero and King Saul, never all that stable to begin with, becomes increasingly jealous of the shepherd boy in his court. So jealous that he tries to have David killed. So how would his friend Jonathan react to this? First Samuel 19. Saul now urged his servants and his son, Jonathan, to assassinate David. But Jonathan, because of his strong affection for David, told him what his father is planning. Tomorrow morning, he warned him, which is David, you must find a hiding place out in the fields. I'll go ask my father to go out there with me, and I'll talk to him about you. Then I'll tell you everything I can find out. The next morning, Jonathan spoke with his father about David, saying many good things about him. The king must not sin against his servant David, Jonathan said. He's never done anything to harm you. He has always helped you in any way he could. Have you forgotten about the time he risked his life to kill the Philistine giant and how the Lord brought a great victory to all of Israel as a result? You were certainly happy about it then. Why should you murder an innocent man like David? There is no reason for it at all. So Saul listened to Jonathan and vowed, as surely as the Lord lives, I will not, David will not be killed. And afterward, Jonathan called David and told him what had happened. Then he brought David to Saul, and David served in the court as before. So the most powerful man in David and Jonathan's world wants David dead. But instead of following orders from the king or bowing to pressure, Jonathan sticks up for his friend. He risks his very life to challenge his father. Saul could have easily had his son killed for insubordination. Saul's instability was well known, and if you know much about the history of royal lines in the past, it was not that unusual. And Saul was very clear, clearly jealous of David, even angry. But in the face of all this, Jonathan risks himself for David and teaches us perhaps the most important aspect of true friendship, non-strategic servanthood. You are a friend when you serve someone when there is no benefit to yourself. You care about them even when it is risky and hard. Friends, real friends, are people who have made a commitment to other people that is marked by non-strategic servanthood. Now, unfortunately today, we often confuse friends with friendly people. Now, from time to time, I find myself texting with someone a lot a lot more than I normally would. I respond quickly, I answer questions, I even get together with them. I remember one of these times, I met a guy in the parking lot of the CVS by my house, really hoping he would buy my clock radio I was selling on Craigslist. Our whole conversation was engaging and interesting. We talked about being from the Midwest, what sort of work we did, how long we've been in Tucson, even shared some of our hobbies. But at the end of the day, when he decided not to buy my radio because it wouldn't play CDs, our friendship was over. Now, I am a friendly person, but that does not mean that we were friends. In fact, I don't even remember his name. Our society has badly confused friends with friendly people. We all have mutually beneficial relationships, business associates or classmates that are nice. 
Facebook friends that comment on our statuses and like our photos, but these are not true friendships. A friend is not someone you are devoted to because of what they can do for you or because they are useful to you or you're just plain bored and on the computer, but you are devoted to them just because they are your friend. Real community is based on irrational commitment to each other. In great communities, in great churches, people help each other out and go the extra mile without asking the question, what's in it for me? In John 15, 13, Jesus described real friendship this way. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is what Jesus says real friendship is. And this sort of friendship is marked by non-strategic servanthood. Friendship like David and Jonathan, friendship like Jesus. So the question is, who do you serve and sacrifice for? Even when it doesn't benefit yourself. And who does it for you? This is the second foundation to true friendship. And it is something that we can choose to do. Serve the people that you care about. Give them your time or your skills or your attention. Really listen to them. It's a sacrifice to not talk about ourselves, not to insert ourselves into every conversation, to give someone our focus. But it shows that we care and that we're actually friends and not just friendly people. Non-strategic servanthood. This is not the last time that Jonathan risked his life for David. King Saul's jealousy grew and he again tried to have David killed, both by his own hands and the hands of others. David fled in the face of this danger, but before he left for good, he went to see his friend. David now fled and found Jonathan. What have, you, what have I done? He exclaimed. What is my crime? How have I offended your father that he's so determined to kill me? That's not true, Jonathan protested. You're not going to die. He always tells me everything he's going to do. Even the little things. I know my father wouldn't hide something like this from me. It just isn't so. Then David took an oath before Jonathan and said, your father knows perfectly well about our friendship. So he has said to himself, I won't tell Jonathan. Why should I hurt him? But I swear to you that I'm only a step away from death. I swear it by the Lord and by your own soul. Tell me what I can do to help you, Jonathan exclaimed. So David and Jonathan devise a plan so Jonathan could warn David if his father truly was going to make an attempt on David's life. Before he left to carry out the plan, Jonathan reaffirmed their friendship this way. May the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father, and may you treat me with the faithful love of the Lord as long as I live. But if I die, treat my family with this faithful love, even when the Lord destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a solemn pact with David, saying, may the Lord destroy all your enemies. They were really into destroying enemies then. And Jonathan made David affir reaffirm his vow of friendship again, for Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. So that night at the celebration Jonathan attended with his father, it became abundantly clear that Saul was going to try and kill David. How did Jonathan know? Well, Saul tried to kill Jonathan when Jonathan objected to his father killing Saul or killing David. So Jonathan went to the meeting location. He and David had agreed on and warned his friend of the danger. This is the last time David and Jonathan interact in the Bible. David came out from where he had been hiding near the stone pile. Then David bowed three times to Jonathan with his face to the ground. Both of them were in tears as they embraced each other and said goodbye, especially David. 
At last, Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. The Lord is the witness of a bond between us and our children forever. Then David left, and Jonathan returned to the town. So in the face of incredible danger, David goes to see his friend one last time before he flees, and Jonathan aids him despite the risk. Friendship includes both the trusting vulnerability that David showed by going to his friend and the dependable faithfulness that Jonathan showed in helping him. Let me say that again. Friendship includes both trusting vulnerability and dependable faithfulness. If you don't share your life with others, if you don't share your thoughts and dreams and even your brokenness and pain, real deep friendships can't develop. We must overcome our fear of rejection and revealing ourselves for friendship to blossom. But let me be real, you don't reveal yourself to just anyone. You reveal to yourself to someone who has demonstrated dependable faithfulness. You trust them with little things and you see who they tell and how they treat you and how it affects the relationship. And when they are faithful, you share more of yourself and they reciprocate. Trusting vulnerability and dependable faithfulness. Who do you share your life with? Not just little bits, but more and more of the reality of who you are. How have you been trustworthy when others have shared themselves with you? Maybe this week at the lunch you're gonna have with that friend I mentioned earlier, maybe it's time to start sharing a little more. Opening up about a challenge or a problem sharing a past hurt or maybe a true joy with them and see if they are trustworthy. See how they respond. See if they reciprocate. And then as time goes on, as they show themselves faithful, you share more. When we stay hidden, when we don't share, no one can truly know us and they can't love us if they don't know us. We are all broken. No one is immune. So don't let fear keep you trapped in isolation or loneliness. Everyone is afraid that if someone really knew you, that they wouldn't love you. So enter the danger together and make a real friend who actually knows who you are. Choose trusting vulnerability and dependable faithfulness. Now in the Bible, we don't see another encounter between David and Jonathan, um, but the friendship didn't end there. Much later, years and years later, when David heard of the death of King Saul and his good friend Jonathan, he mourns publicly and deeply. He even writes a lament, a song for them that's recorded in 2 Samuel 1. He says this about Jonathan. Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies dead on the hills. How I weep for you, my brother Jonathan, and how much I loved you. And your love for me was deep, deeper than the love of women. And not only did he write this lament, he he told his followers to sing this lament and take up the mourning for his friend. Jonathan and David shared a deep mutual affection, real friendship that knew no peer in their lives. Now, if you know much about David's uh, troubled romantic life, this should not be a surprise that Jonathan was the person that he had the deepest relationship with. No matter how your romantic life goes, you can still have beautiful life-giving friendships just like David and Jonathan did a friendship in spite of circumstance, a friendship that overcomes the barriers to it, a friendship that's marked not just by similar interests or fun, but by trusting vulnerability and dependable faithfulness. 
a friendship that is defined by non-strategic servanthood and built with time and commitment. Because real friendships don't happen without it. These are the foundations of friendship. Researcher Robert Putnam reminds us of the very real and practical importance of friendship. A rough rule of thumb, he says, if you belong to no groups, but you decide to join one, you cut your risk of dying over the next year in half. So join a group or die, I guess. I guess that's the other option. Um, it's your choice, but I beg you, start deepening your relationships. Give them the time and the commitment they need. Take a risk and join a small group here at Damascus Road. Go on the spring break trip. Serve at the food bank on Saturday. Do something to start that connection and then follow up with something outside of the event or group or Sunday morning. What we do at DR as a community is we try and provide the context for friendships to develop. We try to create spaces where you can meet your next great friend and start the journey to friendship that Peyton was talking about in the video. But we can't make anyone your friend. I can't force someone to be your friend. And we can't make you be a friend either. Only you can do that. But when we make that decision, our life is richer, love abounds, and Jesus tells us that our love for one another would, will be a testament to the world that God is real and that he's transforming people everywhere. Jesus' path when he was on earth was a path of service and sacrifice. And that is how you know if someone is really your friend. Or maybe more importantly, if you are their friend. It happens when people overcome barriers and their fear for friendship. It happens when people reveal themselves and discover a friend who is trustworthy. It happens when people have an irrational commitment to each other expressed in non-strategic servanthood. It happens when people discover a community of loving friends that is hard but so rewarding and they choose to never live without it again. And that's the kind of community where Jesus is really present where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want uh, to be friends, but we recognize that we have an innate selfishness, that we are self-absorbed, concerned for what's going on in our lives, that we're not great at service, that we're not great at time and commitment, that we're fearful, that if people knew us, they wouldn't care for us, Lord. We need your help to overcome these barriers. Help us to commit in time to developing true, deep friendships, Lord. May this community be one that's seasoned by love and grace and known because of your presence in our midst and the love we have for one another. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at damascusroadtucson.com.